third issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 252 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan. Egg and spinach pudding for peasants across the land. <laughs> yeah. I don't understand. Jenny, you're not going to be baking the coronation quiche. Is that the coronation quiche? I love egg and spinach, so to be fair, I'm on board. How do you feel about coronations? I'll probably watch it, to be honest, but I am, my best friend is having a baby shower on that day, which I'm sort of supposed to be organising. So I'll probably, I'll probably <laughs> be making some sandwiches around that time. Well, Big King Charlie Bollocks does want us all to volunteer instead of having a day off. Do you remember when I organised a baby shower? Fortunately, it was in lockdown. Yes, I was going to say, my baby shower. Pretty easy. I just sent a Zoom invite to people. I said, there's only so much we can do online. I mean, Hannah, to be fair, it was attended by like much better people than would ordinarily have been if they'd had to like actually go somewhere. So, you know, I wouldn't have had the scummy mummies at my baby shower. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good and point. And I organised a cake and present delivery to occur yeah. during the baby shower. Cakes that I'd made. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't have had carrot cake couriered to me <laughs> by Mickey's husband. <laughs> That would have been weird. Yeah, look at me trying to take all the credit when I arranged a baby (laughs) shower. In answer to a question, I think I actually think I might watch the coronation. I just need to find someone to watch it with. I think there'll be other people watching, Hannah. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, literally be in a room with and watch it at the same time, because I get the feeling, you know, all of that really inane commentary is going to be absolutely hilarious. Yeah, it'll be good. Who would be good at commentating it? Who would be a good... Like a partridge substitute. Partridge substitute or who would be good? <laughs> Answer either of those questions. <laughs> they should have a red button with, I don't know, Graham Norton or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. To make it... Like yeah. Eurovision. <laughs> Which is the same day. So big big day for the BBC, right? I think that it starts, but the final's on Saturday the 13th. What a week to be British, Oh my eh? goodness. Yeah, it was history, isn't it? Who knows if we'll see another one. I really hope I outlive French Charles, but... Um, Me too. You know. <laughs> For all of us, just <laughs> FYI. I'm Hannah leaving, and my walls are made of diamonds, Ooh. I think. Have you been drilling? Even with a hammer drill. I had, for the second time in my life, the terrifying experience of a drill bit split in half, and then half of it fly yeah. past my face mm. incredibly quickly. Scary. And me think, oh, thank God I didn't lose an eye. And then turn around with the utter panic that one of the cats was going to have it impaled in them. But no, it broke an ashtray, actually. And by ashtray, I mean old goo container. (laughs) (laughs) The universal use of an old goo container. It was sitting on my windowsill. I misheard that, which is why my laughter was a little bit delayed. And I thought she said an old pube container. And was like, I'm not going to judge your interior decor, but... I don't keep them on the windowsill. <laughs> Where do you keep them? <laughs> That's for me to know and whoever cleans my possessions out when I die to find That's out. That's probably going to be me. <laughs> All right, what a wanker. I'm Sunday Time Sports Book Award shortlisted author Jen Offord. Thanks very much. Congratulations, Wowzers. Thank you. Incredible scenes. Thanks very much. When do you find out if you can get rid of the shortlisted and just put winner? Uh, All I can say to you is that I'm up against some uh, quite good books, so I'm not going to win it. But on the 24th of May, all will be revealed at the Oval. Is there a ceremony? Yeah, I'm going. Oh, At the Oval. A drinks reception at the Oval. You're going to have a special quiche. Fingers crossed. I imagine (laughs) like dinner at these events is sort of mediocre kind of wedding vibe later on author rebecca f john woos me with tales of strength beauty heroism tragedy and scotland yard as we chat about real life welsh victorian strongwoman kate williams aka vulcana i chat to professional organizer jen jordan about the cathartic powers of decluttering and the unexpected things one finds in a Rivita box and i've is just... it hannah's pubes <laughs> <laughs> It's not that far off, guys. I don't want any spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> and in Jenny Off the Blocks, we look back at a huge weekend in women's sport. And in Rated or Dated, can Christopher Guest and Eugene Levy dupe a 1960s folk what This Is Spinal Tap did for heavy metal? We find out as we watch 2003's A Mighty Wind. Well... <laughs> Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by author Rebecca F. John. Rebecca, hello. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. What's your F about? 
Oh, my F. My F is just my middle name is Faye. Um, however, somebody did once ask me at a book launch whether it stood for fiction, which I thought was quite funny. <laughs> so perhaps, perhaps I'll adopt that instead. F tends to stand for something very different on Sunday issue. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, I could adopt that. Yeah, that would be better, maybe. So, Rebecca, your latest novel is about a real-life Welsh-Victorian strong woman, and I am beyond delighted that you wrote a book just for me, even though <laughs> we've never even met. Tell us about Kate Williams, Kate Roberts, Vulcana. Kate Williams, I always refer to her as, in my mind. She was from Abergavenny in South Wales, and she was the daughter of a Baptist minister who ran away from home, aged 16, to become a strong woman and very quickly actually became, became a very famous strong woman and ended up performing all over the world on the music hall stages. So I uh, discovered Kate or Vulcana, as was her stage name, when I was doing some, some research and uh, I just happened across her and I didn't know anything about her before that. So I became completely fascinated uh, and ended up just doing lots and lots of research and have been talking about her ever since, actually. <laughs> it is an incredible story. Uh, just a little side note, I'm actually related to a strong woman called Kate Williams. My sister-in-law uh, yeah. is mad strong. She's a personal trainer and she's really fast. She just nailed the London Marathon in three hours, seven minutes. Uh, wow. Insane. I don't think she can lift a man with one hand, though. <laughs> Well, maybe she can work up to that. <laughs> I think, you know, next time we're drunk on Prosecco, I might suggest it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, she's, yeah, she's got the name anyway. She's got the uh, the inspiration there. Totally. She? So Vulcana, the novel, is a fictionalised account of the life of the very real Kate Williams. Hmm. So how much is based in fact and how did you go about researching Kate? Almost all of it is factual. Of course, when you're imagining a personality, you have to allow yourself uh, a certain amount of artistic license. But yeah, it, it's almost all based in fact. Every performance that she does, every theatre that's mentioned, every country she travels to, her family relationships, all of that is, is factual as far as I can tell and as far as I, I know it to be. I was really helped with research in that I came across a blog about Kate I contacted the woman who had written that blog and posted it. And she is Kate Williams' great-granddaughter, Jane. Yeah. So Jane has been researching her great-grandmother for decades. And she was able to furnish me with lots and lots of research, which really helped around newspaper articles, magazine articles, uh, and timelining you know, so that really, really helped. I was able to to sort of, I sort of had a timeline laid out for me by June, which was amazing. And then beyond that, it was lots and lots of internet research because I I wrote the book during the first COVID lockdown. So I really was bound to my desk. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, Jane had done this amazing amount of research and was was happy to share it with me, which was fantastic. How wonderful getting someone actually related to Kate to share those yeah. stories. Yeah, I know. And um, Jane actually said when I contacted her that she had been waiting for years for somebody to, to come and say they were writing a novel about Kate. And and um, we sat at Jane's kitchen table and talked about her for hours. And it was, it was just amazing. Yeah. I mean, strength, beauty, heroism, mm. tragedy, whales. What made you want to write about her? <laughs> I know you said at the head that I'd written a book just for you, but actually I think I've written a book just for me. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, on, a, on kind of a serious note, I, as a Welsh schoolgirl, never heard about Kate. And I, as a Welsh woman, had never heard about Kate. And I, I just didn't understand why that was, you know. She was doing so many wonderful things and she's right there as part of our history. And most people I speak to have never heard of her. And so hopefully I can I can do a little bit of something to change that. Because she was mad famous. The Victorians were obsessed with Vulcana, weren't they? They were totally mm. captivated by the, at the time, huge juxtaposition between her incredible feats of strength. And they really were incredible. And the fact she looked very feminine. They, were, they just could not get their heads yeah. around that. <laughs> no, no. And, and she did. She's a really 
beautiful woman. You know, I've got lots of photos of her, and there are there are lots of photos of her in the public domain, and she's incredibly beautiful. And you know, she was five foot four, and I've actually got a list of her measurements, and uh, she she was basically just a, like a modern UK size ten, five foot four woman. She wasn't enormously built, and yeah, they, as you say, they couldn't quite bend their minds around this idea that she wasn't to quote from from Sandow's magazine that she wasn't mannish <laughs> um, I think was the the word they used and I was reading an article in in Sandow's magazine about her which which said oh well she's actually a very charming girl <laughs> the, you know the, the huge the huge surprise that sort of is implied in that sentence so yeah she was something of a, a juxtaposition for them I think but yeah, incredibly, incredibly well known and all across the world as well. Mm. You've just mentioned magazine interviews there in the book throughout the story. She gives lots of interviews where she keeps trying to extol the virtues of women doing exercise, of women yeah. taking off their corsets. It's not great not being able to breathe properly. Who knew? But the papers <laughs> and magazines just keep going back to those measurements. And she gets really frustrated by it, doesn't she? Yeah, um, I mean, of course, that's that's partly my imagining. I don't know how she would have felt about those those interviews. But as you say, where I've taken them from real sources, and I have, she just keeps coming back to that and saying, well, no, we should be taking off our corsets. We should be exercising. We should be allowing the muscles to support our backs. <laughs> uh, and, you know, she obviously was, was really passionate about putting that message across because she keeps coming back to it and obviously has to keep coming back to it and has to keep saying, no, you know, this is the message, not let's run another list of Vulcana's measurements, but actually let's talk about why women aren't making themselves physically strong and why they should make themselves physically strong, which was an incredible message for the time, I think, at a time when especially, you know, middle and upper class people did not want to be associated with a muscular physique because it was an indication, of course, of physical labour. You know, miners had muscles and, and people who worked in fields had muscles and, and the upper class weren't, weren't interested in looking and being strong. And of course, that was sort of starting to change around that time. But for her to be out there saying it as a woman, I think, was a really bold move. It absolutely was. And, you know, in lots of ways, we're a hundred odd plus years down the line and we have moved on in that women are encouraged more to be fit and strong. But there is still that enormous focus a hundred mm. years later on how the female body looks over how it performs and criticism yeah. that we see time and time again of how some incredibly fit female bodies look, because mm. surely that should still be the most important thing. This is what really struck me about Kate, I think, as well, is, is that there are so many issues she had or seemed to have that, and certainly does as a character, as I've developed her, that we all still have, like you say, a hundred plus years later. You know, she was fighting a body image issue. She had a, a non-traditional family setup. She was being questioned over her ability to be a good mother uh, you know should she be a working mother should she not be a working mother these are all issues that we still feel and explore and talk about every day can women have it all Rebecca <laughs> yeah can women have it all Kate was wondering that in in the 1890s and we're still wondering now so yeah I, I found that fascinating because I think she really does speak to to modern women in a lot of ways but through her physicality absolutely yeah do you lift no <laughs> no I do you know I'm I do want to try I want to try oh it's the best you should totally try it I'm a year in and I'm like wow this is transformative and it sounds like hyperbolics <laughs> that's what it sounds like but it's not it's like it's so good for your brain as well as your body yeah I mean I, I will try I, I have um, an autoimmune condition which has kind of it has affected my ability to my my physical abilities to a certain degree over recent years. So it would be really good for me to to fight back a little bit with that as well. I think there is also a huge like oh love story, just huge love story at the heart of Volcana, mm. that of Kate and William, aka Atlas. But they were builder siblings, and despite having six children together, 
no one ever found out the truth about their relationship in their lifetime. Mm. Like, mm. they should have been spies. How did they manage to keep that a secret? <laughs> I know. And, of course, you know, a lot of my research and a lot of what I, I know about Volcana has come from newspapers. And as far as you can tell, William was a really great PR man. So how much we can believe is questionable. But having spoken to her great-granddaughter, I obviously know that the family setup was quite an unusual one in that William, a.k.a. Atlas, as you say, they were billed as, as Atlas and Vulcana, the brother and sister strong people. And they were, in fact, lovers and, until they died. You know, they were together until they died. William had been married, was married to a woman called Alice. They had children. And when Kate and William started travelling around together, became lovers at some point, they had either four or six children, depending on the on the reports. Mm. In the novel, I've, I've stuck with four because that's the number I had from Kate's great-granddaughter. And what a relief that is for Kate's body. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and as far as we can tell, Alice, uh, William's wife, was instrumental in, in raising the children. So they seem to have had um, a, an amenable setup whereby, you know, the three of them were raising children together to some extent. But of course, the children weren't traveling with Kate and William when they were when they were small. They were they were at home with Alice. And, you know, that in itself is fascinating enough. But the fact that they managed to to keep up this pretense of being brother and sister for so many years through this long, long career. <laughs> like you say, they should have been spies, absolutely, because it's incredible that they kept that facade up. And the newspaper articles, they they talk about this this childhood they never shared, you know, and how, how William was her trainer when she was a, a young child, because obviously being her brother, he got her interested in, in weights, um, which wasn't the case at all. A really interesting setup. So interesting and would have obviously caused utter disgrace to fall upon the family if, if the news mm. had got out in the Victorian times in the time they were alive. But still, I think, raise some eyebrows now, if I'm honest with you. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it would, yeah. So, yeah, you had me at Victorian strong woman. You wooed me even more by using her as a jump off point to explore what it was like to be a gender non-conforming woman in that time. And then towards the end, you just throw in Dr. Crippin. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> was Kate Williams really involved with getting Cora Crippin, a.k.a. Belle Elmore's yeah. murder in front of Scotland Yard? Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, and that, you know, I am denied about including that in the novel because the novel spans many years of, of Kate's life, really, from when she's 16 through to, to the end of her life. And there are so many unbelievable things happening. You know, she's, <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned heroism earlier and she always seems to be doing something heroic. You know, she's pulling drowning children out of a river or she's stopping a runaway horse or she's racing into a burning theatre <laughs> I thought surely I can't keep including these <laughs> these incidences of of heroism you know and so there are some that I that I left out but when it came to including uh, the Dr Crippen Cora Crippen murder I just I just had to include that because reportedly Kate Williams was the first person to to realize what had happened and to report it to Scotland Yard and of course, she and, and some female friends who had realised what had happened weren't taken seriously by, by the police and had to sort of enlist a male friend to, to go and report it to the police, at which point it was taken up and investigated and so on and so forth. Yeah. Incredible. There's a whole chapter, or, or the majority of a chapter, where Kate is kind of talking to William about what she she knows, she believes in her heart has happened. And he's like, are you going to go to the police? He's very supportive of her. She has this male ally throughout her life, which mm. in lots of ways enables her to do stuff that wasn't normal for women at the time. But he is like, you should go. And she's like, they're not, they're not going to believe me. I'm a woman. At this point, women don't have the vote. You throw in some suffragettes as well. Thank you very much. Mm. But um, <laughs> so she, she is well within her knowledge to think they're not going to believe me. And then she's 
having this conversation, we're reading it on the page, and then it plays out. And even though you know it's going to happen, it is so frustrating and more frustrating mm. because it still happens today. Yeah, again, it just it felt like a parallel to me that if a woman were to walk into a police station today and say, I think this man has murdered my friend, would she be taken seriously? You know, how how many women would she encounter on the other side of the the desk, if you like? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, she doesn't encounter any women. She goes to Scotland Yard and it's entirely male. And that's what she has to kind of face, really, is is a group of men and try and try and persuade them that she needs to be listened to, which also, to me, felt like a real parallel between her, her life on the stage as we touched on earlier, you know, she was fighting to to make this point about women and, and strength and exercise and health. And all the time she was being met by responses that, you know, had nothing to do with that, really. Mm-hmm. And I, it felt like a neat kind of parallel that she would experience that same kind of response from, from the police when she went to report the murder. It's such an incredible book. And I totally fell in love with Kate, with Vulcana. With Kate. Thank you. With Kate and Vulcana. <laughs> I don't know. She's very much, she splits them, which is, again, really interesting how she does that. What was your favourite Kate story that you discovered? Oh, do you know, it's tough, isn't it? Because, as I say, William seems to have been a really amazing PR man. (laughs) Um, You know, there's always something in the newspaper, some act that makes you think, wow, you know, who's this woman? Of course, I'm going to go to the theatre and see this woman. She's amazing, you know. But I think probably what struck my my heart most was that her her great granddaughter had said to me that Kate always worried that she wasn't a proper mother. That was the the phrase she used, the, a proper mother, and that really struck me when I was looking at photos of her and the children and the girls did perform with her when they were older. But I've got just this one image of her and these two two girls, and she's got her arms around them and she looks so happy and so relaxed as opposed to all the kind of staged images of her posing with her muscles and things. She she looks like a different woman. And I think that really touched me in a way that the stories, you know, the stories about the burning buildings and the pulling people from rivers didn't have that same effect on, on me and on a personal level. But the stories of what she did are just endless. You know, there was... <laughs> There's a there's a story written about where she lifts a, a, like a runaway cart to get a man who's trapped from underneath it. And I couldn't include that in the novel because it butted right up against this incident of her pulling someone from a river. And I, there's no way, there is no way in fiction that I can <laughs> I can have those two events pushed right up against each other. And there are there are other stories of her sort of apprehending pickpockets and throw in men off trains in Australia and it just it's just never ending you couldn't you couldn't choose a favorite amongst those I don't think I want to be her friend I know and me we've not even touched on the fact that she heard herself proclaimed dead because she wasn't actually dead (laughs) well yeah there is that as well yeah (laughs) I mean, I think, Rebecca, you're gonna, you've got your work cut out to find the next subject, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. Although I've always got ideas for what I want to write next, but I think I'm going to stick to pure fiction the next time around because I, I don't know who or what I could do justice to really after, after thinking and writing about Volcano for such a long time. She's definitely someone who's going to stay with you, I think. She's going to stay with me, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she she's completely captured my heart. And, you know, as a writer, you've spent so long writing and drafting and redrafting and editing a book that oftentimes by the time it publishes, you're, you're just sick to death of it, you know. But I can't stop talking about Volcana. I want to talk about it all of the time. And that's really nice as well, that I, I haven't hit my my sort of limit on this book at all. <laughs> I just want to tell everybody about her. Well, listeners, join in the hopefully universal chat about this incredible woman. Volcana <laughs> is published by Hono and is out tomorrow, May the 4th, available from all good bookshops. Rebecca, where can people follow what you're up to? I am on Twitter at Rebecca underscore writer. And and that's pretty much it for me in terms of social media at the moment. I really have to learn how to use Instagram, but I'm 
old Mickey and I can't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, the publisher's website, my website, RebeccaFJohn.com. And I will be talking about Vulcana a lot everywhere. (laughs) Thank you for talking about her with me. I have thoroughly enjoyed myself. Thank you for having me. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where, wait, I deliver almost exclusively good news as we discuss all things women's sport. Okay, let's start off with some weird news, potentially bad news. I almost don't want to add to the growing chorus of You OK, Hun, directed at Emma Raducani after her 58-word press conference ahead of her opening match at the Madrid Open last week. It's worth saying that she pulled out of that tournament less than 24 hours later with a hand injury. Nonetheless, it's not a great look. I understand press conferences are the part of your job that you don't really like, but they are necessary to promote the game, ensure that people want to watch, and that you consequently keep earning the big bucks. So my feeling is like, well, we've all got things about our jobs that we don't like, even me, guys. You know, we just put on our big girl pants and crack on. That said, she has had a bit of a rubbish time of it, to be fair. She's just not been able to maintain her fitness. She's currently ranked 85th by the WTA, which is quite a tumble. There's the WTA Rome starting next week, and then after that, we're on to the French Open. So, you know, who knows what's going to happen. Meanwhile, it is bad news for Arsenal, but incredible news for women's football after the North Londoners lost to Wolfsburg on Monday, who beat them 3-2 in the second leg of their Champions League semi-final. Stina Blackstenius gave them an early lead in the 11th minute before Jill Rord and Alexandra Pop put the visitors ahead. Jem Beattie forced the game to extra time with a goal in the 75th, but a defensive howler gave substitute Pauline Bremer the opportunity to nab a last-minute goal in the dying minutes of the game. The win put Wolfsburg ahead 5-4 in aggregate, and that's it for Arsenal for the Champions League this year. Final dreams are over. Hang on, you promised us nearly exclusively good news and nothing good has happened yet. I hear you cry. Lads, they did it in front of a record crowd, a sold out Emirates Stadium. That's right, 60,063 fans watched Arsenal shit the bed at home, which in some ways, yeah, not so great. But for the haters who walk among us, lol. It was unthinkable that this could happen, I would say, certainly five years ago, maybe two years ago, shit, maybe even six months ago. And I am so, so cautious about hailing this kind of thing as, you know, some great signifier of of whatever, because one match does not a systemic change maketh. But this is a really big deal and props to all the people working at every level of the game to make this possible. Who had a better week than Arsenal in front of a record home crowd, I hear you ask? Well, it was the England rugby team who took home their fourth consecutive Grand Slam in the Women's Six Nations at the weekend. The match against France, which I've mentioned a fair few times on this podcast, was at Twickenham in front of 58,498 fans. Again, a brilliant number. Again, unthinkable until very, very recently. The Sugar Babes, original lineup, FYI, performed... I'm here for it. I called it a while ago as what was likely to be one of the more competitive matches of the tournament, and it was. England beat France by 38 points to 33, despite leading 33-0 at the halftime break. What a comeback for France. Not enough, but, you know, what an excellent match. I've no doubt it would have been. And what a way for England to bounce back from that World Cup misery last year. Congratulations to them. That is all from me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sport. I am joined by Jen Jordan, a professional organiser and founder of Organize. First of all, Jen, as someone who is also called Jen and loves a pun, I want to say props for that name. That's incredible. Oh, thank you very much. Like, it's so funny because like, every now and again, someone just doesn't get it at all. And they're like, oh, you, are, you, are you from Norway? <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's, it's organised with Jen in the middle. What? Like, I oh, don't I even you, understand that. I thought you were Scandinavian. <laughs> <laughs> they think it's Orgenisi. And like, one of my friends oh. once was like, I didn't know your real name was Orgenisi. I'm like, you've known me 
30 years. <laughs> so yes, thank you for recognising the pun. Big fan of that. <laughs> Jen, wh- what a start. Can you tell me, please, first of all, for the uninitiated, what the hell is a professional organiser, please? Yeah, I think that's half the battle is um, people don't know what that is. I think people think that it's like the people on the kind of hoarding disorder programmes mm-hmm. where, um, you know, I'm just lobbing things into a skip, laughing and having <laughs> a lovely time. But actually, it's it's just basically if you're not that organised or you've never really got your house to function properly or there's just too much stuff and it's just you never know where to start. I come in, look at your house. We ideally get rid of a chunk of stuff and then put systems in place to let the house function better for the person who lives there, not for every... It's not like a one-size-fits-all with me. It's just putting things in categories, where you use them, making systems for your house to work properly, um, and then make it look nice. That's the end bit, really. So it's just getting a house to function for the people that are in it is really what I'm doing. Do you have to have quite a lot of like emotional conversations with people about letting go of like, I don't know, the, the cinema ticket stub from like 15 years ago? Yeah, I mean, like the, the fascinating thing about stuff is, you know, it's not just stuff, is it? It's the story of who you've been and it's the story of who you hope to be and it's the feelings that it brings up. And it's, I mean, you know, you can just cry over the weirdest thing. It just brings up this little memory there's lots of tears in my job. And yeah, I think that's the really fascinating thing about stuff. It's just, you can look at it and say, oh, that's just a mug. And you're like, no, actually, that was uh, my grandma's mug. And, you know, she made tea in that every morning. And and it's suddenly, it's just got this like hold on people. And often the stuff that I think, oh, this is really precious and this is going to go, it's the exact opposite. It's like, oh, no, I couldn't care less about that. But this is really important to me. Like my dad died, I've got two things that he owned. One is a pot that he made with his name on the bottom. And one is literally a Stanley knife that, I mean, didn't mean anything to him, but I just really like the fact he held it and like, I like to hold it in my hand. And and that's just nothing, it's just nothing. It didn't mean anything to him, but that somehow has become 23 years on the thing that was my dad's. So it's not like it's a rational thing with stuff. I mean, that example I gave you, a 15-year-old cinema ticket stub, is a real example because when I moved house at one point and my best friend came to help me get my shit together, basically, she was just yeah. like, what What have we got this for, you know? And I do have probably, not like boxes, but like, all right, envelopes full of ticket stubs and stuff like that and, and festival wristbands and things like that. And you're like... Well, that's like who you were as a kid, right? It's probably from when you were, what, how, 20? 18. Yeah, like, in, yeah, in my 20s. But, like, why am I... I never look at them. I don't keep them anymore, but I know in my loft there is a small shoebox that has got loads of gig tickets from probably 14 to probably 20, 22. And I've not got rid of those either. But I don't keep them now. I just love them now. No, But I actually... Keep them. Why? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think, it's, I think it's very easy to forget that you went to these things. And also, like, I know that I went to see Blur in November 1995 because I have that ticket upstairs. Would I have remembered the exact day that I went to that? I think also, in the grand scheme of things, I probably differ to other people that do this job. It's not taking up that much space. Like, if it's giving you a little bit of pleasure, you know, a shoebox full of tickets, it's not. If it's giving you pleasure, why not? If you've got nine huge 20 litre boxes full of them let's chat (laughs) but you know if it's just a small box of stuff that you've done that you like to rummage through every now and again and think oh yeah I forgot I went to see that play and I forgot I went to see that why not I mean as you say you're you're a bit different to other people that do this and on your website you say that you weren't always an organized person (laughs) and that you did lots of shopping and that you never let things go why did you choose to sort of switch it up and how do you think apart from obviously like giving you a career how do you think that's helped you yeah so a bit of background um I was <laughs> my mum's always like where did this come from you were never like this <laughs> <laughs> I was disgusting like disgusting I've been with uh, my now husband since we were 19 
and he got signed to a band. So we had this flat when we were like 19 and like everyone just partied around there. We were just, I was on tour with him quite a lot. My twenties were very chaotic, did not care about my house. Also, um, my dad died and my husband's mum died. It was really traumatic. And I think the way I dealt with that was shopping, lots and lots of shopping, like lovely serotonin boost shopping, forget about it. There's a lot going on at the time. And honestly, if I get stressed now, it, it comes back. It mm. does come back. It's not like I lost someone last year and I suddenly find myself kind of like, oh, what am I doing? I'm walking around. Like, this is the stress reaction that you thought had gone. So so anyway, my house filled with loads and loads of stuff. I was pretty depressed and just picked up the Marie Kondo book. Um, probably not that long after it came out. So we're talking kind of maybe 10, 11 years ago. I was really into a big self-help kind of like walking around Waterstones, picking up whatever. But, oh, let's just read this, try this. And... I just thought, right, let's do it. Just let's try. I didn't quite do the method the way it is. Like, she's very strict in how she does it. But I did it. And it just was like, I mean, it's just such an easier way of living your life with less stuff. You know, the clothes were my big thing. Tons and tons and tons. A spare room full of boxes. The 20 litre box is full of stuff. Now I've got like one pole. Don't fit on that pole. It's got to go. It's just a total game changer in terms of like time, effort, thought, energy. So yeah, it's the life changing magic of tidying up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I still love looking at stuff. You know, I'm still like, I love a car boot sale. I love walking around auctions. I love all that stuff. I just buy about 2% of what I used to buy. <laughs> And it's been a very long process. There's something about going to someone's house every day and looking at stuff all day that makes you really look at what you're bringing back into your own house as well. Do you think that decluttering is, I don't know, sort of almost cathartic? Do you think there are real tangible mental health benefits? I think for some people, yeah, and certainly for me, and also, let's face it, I did also do therapy. Like, this wasn't a standalone. <laughs> I'm fine now because I decluttered. Like, I absolutely yeah. spent a lot of money on therapy as well. Um, otherwise, I would be not good. So, yeah, I think it can be part of... My husband's also a counsellor. I really believe that talking to someone is the way to really help yourself if you've got bad mental health. I really, really think... I think this can help. I think the inside of your house often reflects the inside of your brain yeah if i'm really busy yeah if i'm you know if i've got three weeks of five days a week i get home and i think oh what is going on here like there's just you know i ain't got time to keep on top of everything if i'm really busy because it's a really tiring job um and i just think like if i've not made time for myself my house shows that yeah no totally um but yeah i think it can i think it can help i think just you know, being able to find things and not being stressed and it not adding to the stress of yeah. of everyday life definitely helps. But um, yeah, I think there's other things that would make a bigger difference, such as therapy. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, this is not yeah. the, the answer to all of oh, your I problems. I think it's a very, I see a lot of people say, oh, it's it's, it's like therapy, isn't it? I'm like, no, it's, it's therapeutic, but it's not like therapy, you know. I think it's totally right that like chaos kind of breeds chaos, doesn't it? It can reflect what's going on inside, can't it? Aesthetically, decluttering or like a sort of like simplified, that sort of become quite a trend, hasn't it, in recent years? And I was just thinking like, I don't know, I get increasingly pissed off of it. Like, why does my fridge have to be behind a door? Like, Why does my bin have to be in a cupboard? Why can't I just have some plug sockets in view? Like, I don't understand. I feel like there has been like a little bit of a backlash towards some of this stuff, like and Marie Kondo and, and things like that. I wonder what you thought about that. Well, I think, firstly, everyone probably thinks that I live this like minimalist lifestyle and like, absolutely not there's like nine gallery walls going on in my house it's not minimalist i tried minimalism it really really made me quite sad and it made yeah. me feel like a, it honestly made me like feel like a failure anything i kept i just felt like a failure so 
I suppose I went to one extreme and then built back from that. And now I like to call it curated maximalism is what I like to call it. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yes, I did go to art school, obviously. (laughs) I like to see people's personalities in their house. The thing that put me off the minimalist movement was there was one book I read where it said, oh, don't have any art. It's just more stuff to dust. And I just thought, I'm out. I'm totally out. (laughs) like 600 pictures in my house. I'm out. I think the sweet spot is you just need to get rid of all the stuff that's not great, that you don't love. The sparking joy thing of Marie Kondo doesn't hit with everyone, but like what she wants is you to have something you love of everything and then skim the rest out. And then what you're left with is everything great that you enjoy and your house is just very enjoyable because of that. People do love to give Marie Kondo a kick in and I, I do love Marie. I think it's quite easy to give her a kick in on a few things and she's an easy target. But I mean, I read her last book, which isn't, it came out a couple of months ago and within 20 minutes, my house looked better. It absolutely, I was stood up like, oh yeah, the bin, I can see the bin from my from my sofa, I'll move that. And I was just like, it just, it helps people. I think it, she's helped a lot of people to lead a nicer life. With that in mind, outside of buying Marie Kondo's book or obviously paying for your services to, to come and help someone do it, I don't want to do you out of a job here, Jen, but <laughs> can you give us some top tips for getting your home organised? One, anything leaving is good. And I'm talking about anything, just like five things. People can get overwhelmed, I've got too much to do, but just set yourself 10 minutes, walk around your house with a carrier bag for the charity shop and just pop things in it for 10 minutes. Also, those little bites, those 10 minutes, they really add up. I think I think one thing I don't agree with with Marie Kondo is pull all of your clothes out and put them on the bed. Well, most people would have a cry if that's... No, don't, don't do that. Just go through your sock drawer, then do your T-shirts, and then it's not going to be perfect, but you, as long as you're pulling stuff out, I don't want you to spend four hours doing that on a Saturday. Like, that's just not a great use of your time. And it's not going to make you enjoy the process. So the number one thing is I do this thing every year called the Organize 100 in January and September, usually, where we get rid of 100 things over one month. And the best thing you can do in that, and I always always think I'm never going to hit 100, toiletries and food. Just look at all your toiletries and then start using them up. And then if there's any full ones that you don't need, hygiene banks are in most boots and super drugs or food banks will take some of it. And the second one is food. It's amazing what you find, you know, that you've forgotten about that's at the back of the cupboard. Honestly, I bet I bet when I do that challenge, I get 30 just from those two categories. So I think if you really want to get the ball moving toiletries and food are just such a good one and also you know it's quite nice you you know you're all glowing and moisturized and (laughs) (laughs) and the other one the main one is be really careful about what comes in you know especially freebies and if you've got someone in your life that likes to you know fob stuff off on you like start questioning whether you need that stuff that comes in if you've got kids is a big one at christmas and you've got that relative that buys 30 presents for one of your kids maybe you know start to pay attention to what where it's all coming from so that brings me neatly to my final question jen because i love your instagram right i find it genuinely like very interesting to to look at things and you have found some quite random stuff on your travels but personal (laughs) favorite from a couple of weeks ago was a Sainsbury's whole coriander jar, which I think dated back to 1995. It's in the Hall of Fame. I can't declare my own crap. (laughs) For the listener, Jen has got it in her hand. It is from February 1996. 1996. I mean, look at it. It's so vintage. It's brown. No one uses brown for packaging anymore, do they? It's a record holder. I've got two things in the collection, and this is one of them. And the other one is, hang on, uh, this film canister that says, keep carpet beetle for local council. <laughs> like, I can't get rid of that. That's hilarious. Does it have a carpet beetle in there? It doesn't, know. Like, <laughs> so even more, even more random. But yeah, that's my... um. 
That's my two favourite pies of all time. I mean, that coriander has <laughs> outlasted eight prime ministers, if you include Liz Truss. I think you do include Liz Truss. I, I mean, think sadly, we all want to pretend that didn't happen, Jen, but that sadly, did Sadly, we, we must. <laughs> I have had a little look because... I know that I can be guilty of these things, and I do have some ginger best before date 2015. Oh, you're an amateur. An that amateur is five prime ministers, so, you yeah. know, we've had a few wow, recently. we've got five prime ministers, wow. Yeah. I'm a Spurs fan, and we're going through it like Spurs go through managers. Oh, <laughs> Spurs. Oh, Spurs. So what, I think you've already answered the question, but what is the weirdest thing you found? Is it the non-carpet oh, beetle? I mean, oh. I mean, I know what the weirdest thing I found is. I'm just trying to think if... I'm just going to say it. It was a, a dildo in a Ribeet Swaps. Because <clears throat> everyone does love that story. And she wouldn't mind me telling that story. She'd just be like, yeah. <laughs> I can't explain it to you. I didn't ask her about it. I just left her on her homework pile to deal with. <laughs> was it in a cupboard? Or was it like no, in the bedside? It was in a very large pile of things. It was unexpected. I opened the Ribeats box and then thought, I don't, no, it can't have been. And then I said, <laughs> even though you know, you know, I was like, I'll look again. Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah. Do you think she's trying to hide it from like, oh, they won't go in there because it's Ribeats and no one likes Ribeats. And then just shoved in there to deal with it. <laughs> I mean, we've all done it. So, Jen. Where do we go from there? <laughs> We go to the end. Jen, where can our listeners... That was the end of my questions. Don't worry, you've not, like, shocked okay. me so much with your dildo <laughs> find that, uh, that I'm dildo. having to end the entry. That's it, it's all over. <laughs> no, this was going to be the end anyway. So, Jen, okay. where can we follow you on the socials to keep up to date with, <laughs> with your findings? <laughs> I don't tend to, to share those ones widely unless you know i'm on a podcast and then just yeah, mm-hmm. roll that one out uh so yeah instagram's where i do most stuff this organized o-r-j-e-n-i-s-e organized with jen in the yeah. middle so yeah instagram and then obviously i have a website and everything that you can link from there com. jen this has been delightful thank you so much <laughs> for joining me <laughs> Welcome to Rated or Dated. Come on, boys. Potatoes in the paddy wagon. <laughs> Got to get her out of there. Mickey, what did we watch this week? This week, we watched what could easily have been a flicking pick for me. So be aware that my powder is fully soaked before we even start chatting about 2003 folk music mockumentary A Mighty Wind. Written by Christopher Guest and Eugene Levy, it features... Well, guest company of actors, basically. Familiar faces from previous mockumentaries. 1984's Biggest and the Best. This is Spinal Tap. Ooh, little swoon there for me. 1996 Look at Amateur Dramatics Waiting for Guffman. And 2000's Dogtastic Best in Show. It is a who's who of formidable talent. Guest, Levy, Michael McKean, Harry Shearer, Catherine O'Hara, Fred Willard, Bob Balaban, Ed Begley Jr., Jennifer Coolidge, John Michael Higgins, Jane Lynch and Parker Posey. Guest always tackles his subjects with affection amid the mockery, but a mighty wind is much more respectful of and therefore gentle with its subjects than Tap, Government and Best in Show, something which drew a little criticism from contemporary reviewers, with our old mucker Roger Ebert commenting that, quote, the edge is missing from Guest's usual style. And for sure, there's a lot less mock in this particular mockumentary, which is more heart than laughs, but that's not to say it's not funny. There are some belting, almost throwaway lines and some big, small roles. Jennifer Coolidge, for instance, she doesn't get much to do, but boy, oh boy, does she do it with gusto. That is some incredible humming, question mark. (laughs) Anyway, as is the way with guest films, the film enjoyed moderate box office success, bringing in a total of 18,750,000 during its theatrical run. Also, as you'd expect from Guest and Levy, A Mighty Wind is almost entirely improvised. Guest and Levy sketched out an overall plot and character backgrounds and then allowed the actors to find their way into the characters. All of that dialogue is improvised, which is incredible. All of the songs were written by McKean, Guest and Levy and the cast who also played all of their own instruments. 
A Kiss at the End of the Rainbow was composed by McKean and his wife Annette O'Toole and was nominated for an Oscar, but sadly didn't win. My favourite review for this film came from Barbara on Amazon, who said, I love the cast in this movie. They are in other movies too. Five stars. (laughs) (laughs) Have either of you seen it before? Yes. No. Okay. And do either of you have any strong feelings either way about folk music? Um, Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I quite like folk. I live in the, a city that has a folk festival and mm-hmm. I worked for the local newspaper for years. So we got to go for free for years and I saw great stuff. I mean, just to go off on a distraction, Cambridge Folk Festival is a bit wider than that. It also has, well, folk itself is quite mm. a wide genre. Yeah. So sometimes mm. it encompasses world music. Sometimes it encompasses like country and Western, you know, bluegrass, all of that stuff. So yeah, I like I like a bit of folk. Yeah. I'm no Hazel Davis, but I do like a bit of folk. I think sometimes Hazel Davis is too Hazel Davis for Hazel Davis, to be honest. (laughs) I don't mind folk. Uh, I know a few folky folk, including my mum, who, lest we forget, is in a sea shanty crew. (laughs) I had forgotten, but I'm delighted by the reminder. Lads, you should definitely come to Harwich International Sea Shanty Festival this year. Put it in your diary. I'll send you dates. A friend of mine told me at the weekend that she had joined a barbershop quartet. Wowzers. Yeah. Wowzers. I want to know more about that, but (laughs) maybe not right now. Now, Hannah, you made a a little sort of squeaky noise about there not being as much mock in this particular mockumentary as there is in Tap, Guffman and The Best in Show. What are you thinking? Well, I think there probably is... I just think that at heart, fundamentally, folk is quite delightful. Mm. So it feels less, it is ridiculous and folk is totally ridiculous. All things when reduced to their element parts are ridiculous, but not in the same way that rock music is ridiculous. Rock music is posturing and stuff. It has a sort of unpleasant edge. So when you poke fun at it, it kind of feels nastier, whereas folk is just delightful. So you poke fun at it. By talking about how it's all like fairies and rainbows. But fairies and rainbows are delightful. So it doesn't fit. Do you know what I mean? So it doesn't feel so hard. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That does make sense. Let's do a very quick rundown of the plot. Folk music promoter Irving Steinblum has died. And so his children stage a tribute concert to their dad, reconnecting a ragtag bunch of musical eccentrics from the folk scene. With only two weeks to put the show together, Jonathan Steinblum, that is a glorious Bob Balaban, quickly secures the participation of his father's biggest stars, including the Folksmen, played by Christopher Guest, Harry Shearer and Michael McKean, the Main Street Singers, well, not really, as all but one of them is dead, but there's the reconstituted The New Main Street Singers, with Parker Posey, John Michael Higgins and Jane Lynch as the standouts in that nerf tet. And finally, there's Mitch and Mickey, played by Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, And that's it, really. We meet the musicians re-meeting each other, hear their joys and apprehensions about performing again, find out what they've been up to since their late 60s heyday, and wonder if Broken Man Mitch will make it on stage at all. So, Hanny, you've sort of touched on this already, and I do feel like comparisons with This Is Spinal Tap are both inescapable and a little bit unfair. So shall we get it out of the way? For me, I love this film, but it's no Spinal Tap. Oh, I mean, agreed, yeah. I haven't watched it as much Mm. as Spinal Tap. And also, I didn't watch it, I mean, 20 years ago. I don't know that any film would have the effect on me that something that I watched in my late teens or whenever I first watched Spinal Tap. You never become quite so devoted to a Mm. film as you do when you see it at that age. So I think those things. But uh, there are bits of this that don't work for me and almost all of Spinal Tap works for me. So... I mean, no, it is it is no Spinal Tap. Jenster? I can't add anything to this because I've never seen Spinal Tap. Sorry, I'm lads. sorry, listeners. We're going to have to stop Wowzers. the podcast while Jen goes and writes this incredible Jen. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. You totally need to. It's amazing. Hence why it was one of my flicking picks. Just on a tap note before we move on from tap, the folksmen, by the way, are almost as old as tap. Mm first appearing in a November 1984 episode of Saturday Night Live, and then again in Spinal Tap's 1992 TV special, The Return of Spinal Tap. Indeed, during an early 90s and then again in a late 90s, early 2000s Spinal Tap tour, 
McKean, Shearer and Guest opened for themselves as a folksman and were booed <laughs> during the first act. <laughs> That's incredible. It is incredible. I love their devotion to touring these creations. It's so good. We're following three main outfits, the new Main Street singers, the Folksman and Mitch and Mickey. And I wondered if you had a favourite or one that doesn't work for you that you wanted to talk about. I like the Folksman the best because I'm only human, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. The Folksman are, yeah. In fact, given that this is basically a vehicle for them, they're not in it enough, I would say. We could do with more of them. I also am a big fan of the New Main Street singers because, just, I mean, Jane Lynch obviously is just incredible. Wowzers. But again, we don't, I don't think we get enough of them either. But also that is so well observed, you know, the new bit of it. Because mm-hmm. I know that happens a lot with like, you know, you've got two versions of Box Fizz touring or whatever, because I, I know, you know, people will go off and form their own. comparison. No, no, yeah. no. But what I'm saying is I know lots of bands are touring. Sorry, this used to, just used to be a joke when we were on a local newspaper because once we did have both versions of Box Fits playing on our <laughs> patch, right, at different times. But anyway, one of the best things I ever saw at the Cambridge Folk Festival was a gospel choir called the Dixie Hummingbirds. And they had an original member who was in his 90s. And then they had the children, and some of them were the grandchildren of the original Amazing. members. So actually, it is a, it is quite common in folk that this this thing exists and then just, I mean, it's done in a much more cynical way You here. do quite often get family bands as well, that's true. You do, yeah. yeah not, and you don't tend to get that in heavy metal, do you? <laughs> no. So I think they're delightful too. I find Mitch totally unfunny and there's way too much of him in it, I would say. Interesting. I don't love Mitch, I have to say. He's too broken. It's not like, I don't find it that funny. It is more kind of a dramatic plot line I think I absolutely love Catherine O'Hara as Mickey though yeah. I think she yeah. really yeah. sells Agreed. it and one of my questions was going to be what do you think is going on with Mitch and Mickey Hannah your response might be I don't care yeah pretty much who gives a fuck I don't know I just thought they'd split up but I don't think it was ever a love affair it felt like she she absolutely oh. adored him and he was playing find the cobra with the chambermaid, as he puts it. I just assumed that they were in a uh, proper, full romantic relationship. I thought they were, like, married and had broken up. Sort of like ABBA, you know? (laughs) But with more... Or Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely precedent there. Yeah. Well, I think they're supposed to be, sort of. I think they're supposed to be Simon and Garfunkel, aren't they? I think they're supposed to be Sonny and Cher. No, but there is a lot of Simon and Garfunkel in them. In the, like, when those album covers that he makes when he first, like, when they first split up and he's quite angry. One of them is, like, totally British over troubled water. Um, so there is, like, an element. And the fact that, you know, the infighting. I, I was kind of agreeing with you here, because what I meant is that's obviously not about a romantic partnership. It's about a partnership mm. that goes wrong. So, yeah. I, I didn't really think about it, to be honest. <laughs> Well, we're on the subject of Catherine O'Hara as Mickey. Let's let's chat about the women. Hannah, you've already mentioned this, but Jane Lynch totally owning it as Laurie Bona, yeah. colour witch. Parker Posey's wild <laughs> child turned grin machine, uh, just giving it her all, bouncing around. And yeah, Catherine O'Hara, who I think for me is kind of the heart of it. But yeah, Jane Lynch is such a powerhouse performance. Mm, yeah, Jane Lynch is just amazing in this. Amazing. I can't I can't express how many times I've watched that bit where she's explaining how she got into the new Main Street. Yeah. <laughs> and John yeah. Michael Higgins' face is just absolutely yeah. impeccable when she's just going, I do a certain thing that other women wouldn't do. Kind of, And he's just like, like a stony stare into the distance. It's so good. Because what's incredible about her is that, and it's pretty much like this with every Jane Lynch character, to be honest, ever, is that I simultaneously love and hate them. I'm just like, oh, my God, you are an awful human being. But at the same time, you're kind of delightful. I really love it. Wink. Yeah. Jen, this will be your first venture into the Witches of Colour. Yeah. How did you find it? He's signing up. Yeah. It was unexpected. It was a twist I was not prepared for and I enjoyed very much. I don't know what the fuck they were supposed to be. 
what were they? Were they like a cult or something? I think so, yeah. No, only in her mind. Yeah, it exists in her mind. <laughs> Hang, what? So that's just something that she's... I mean, I know, like, I didn't see Jack Nicholson twice in that film and we always refer back to that, but I didn't even pick up on... Right, okay. I had no idea. She's made I it real, that that was but actual... it exists only in her mind and, yeah, she's made right. it real. Okay, well, I mean, what a mind, because... I, I mean, we're on the 46th vibration or whatever it is. It's something. It's a conclusion you'd come to just walking down the street, Anna. <laughs> there are some just glorious, some of those real almost throwaway one-liners in those sections with the boners. One, they're called the boners, which is just joyous to me, because yeah. I am a juvenile. This potato song that the new... the the new main street singers do it's driving me mad every time i i heard it you know i had to go back and re-watch it a couple of times because it reminds me of something and i don't know what that thing is but it reminds me of the sort of song that used to be about when i was younger that involved singing a lot of words very fast that were all completely ridiculous Mm. i don't know what those songs were they weren't i don't mean nursery rhymes i mean sort of albums that used to exist that used to have sort of the sort of album that would have like Tommy Steele's Little White Bull on yeah, it and stuff like that. Yeah. Listening to it at my nan's house and there being songs that we sung along that were, were almost exactly like that. I couldn't work out what the song was. I think that's the joy and the genius of it's McKean who wrote that one, of, of McKean and Guest and Levy's songwriting in that they, they make you think you've maybe heard it before. They've got nostalgia built into them already. It's yeah. very clever. Very well observed. I couldn't understand the um, folksman their song which appeared to be like a, almost like an advert joe's place it's called yeah yeah it was i was like is this is this a song from an advert or is this actually a song like is this are they most famous for a song that's been used on an advert no, but that's also a out. similar style of song to that potatoes in the paddy wagon yeah. song of, of yeah because they even go <sighs> at one point because they yeah sing so yeah fast. exactly like no, I don't think it's meant to be an advert. It's their one hit. But it is a style of song that got released, you know, like, I mean, Hannah, forgive me, but like Tom Waits writes about specific places, specific, yeah. specific diners, and they're not adverts. They are just what he's writing about because there is experiences, and I think it's supposed to be the same. How the fuck does Christopher Guest get his voice to do that vibrato thing? It's incredible. I don't know. I don't know. But what I will say is my favourite of all the songs is uh, Never Went A Wandering because it is is perfect. (laughs) It is absolutely like the mirror reflection of what all those songs are. You know, I basically did nothing. It's so funny. But again, what that really spots in folk is I know originally, as in in Spinal Tap Law, you know, that's a song been associated with a folksman. But it's obviously just one of those songs that everyone covers, a bit like May the Circle Be Unbroken or something, mm. which is really commonly covered. So actually, that's really funny that they would both come out and do the same song. That's really folk. That wouldn't exist in rock. Yeah, yeah, you're That's right. like something that's really specific to folk, yeah. yeah. On a little The Folksman note, fun fact... The idea of a record being sold without a hole in the middle is not entirely fictional, (laughs) as you might guess. In the late 1980s, British punk rock group Gay Bikers on Acid released an LP called Drill Your Own Hole, and the first thousand copies left the job of making the hole to the buyer with the aid of a little black dot on the (laughs) B-side. I've probably told you this before. One of my uncles used to run a pub, and it well, he used to own a pub, and it had a, a jukebox in it. And jukebox 45s used to come with a massive hole punched through mm. them. Um, so they could fit on the, the, the mechanism. Anyway, when the songs went out of popularity or whatever and hadn't been he hadn't been played much, he just used to give them to us. So we had loads of these that had too big a hole. And you had to buy this weird plastic clip that went in it. But like my parents bought us like one. So like you wanted to play a, a record, you had to go back and somebody had left it in one of them and you had to go through all of them to find where the black clip was. Hannah, you said that not all of this works for you and you've mentioned that you don't like Mitch. Is there anything mm. else that you want to add to that list of shame? Yeah, I, I think Harry Shearer coming out at the end of it ha- absolutely howls. It, it just doesn't work as a joke. No. I don't think it works in the modern context now, but I think it probably just doesn't work as a joke. Yeah, that was the one bit that I was a bit like, I don't think this, I don't think this has aged terribly well. Yeah, Jen, did you have any favourite bits or bits that didn't work for you? 
No, other than what Hannah's just sort of referred to, I just thought it was generally funny. I did. I, I didn't find it like ruffle funny kind of thing. Like it was just sort of like mildly entertaining throughout, is what I would say. I enjoyed bits of it. There were some silly lines in it that I can't. Re- I can't actually immediately recall now. But there were some silly lines in it that did make me like or like chortle away. And I like the concept of it. And because I do know some folky type people, I did recognise aspects of it. My mum bloody loved it. <laughs> she was having a whale of a time. Uh, obviously, uh, recognising some of the characters, shall we uh-huh. say? Yeah. I think Christopher Guest is, from what I've seen of him, which, bearing in mind, my introduction to his work has pretty much solely come from doing this podcast. Mm. I just think that he has, I'm not going to articulate this in any particularly good way, but like he just has a way about him that is just quite endearing and I feel like you sort of feel for these characters in a way, don't you? Like Mm. I think that they do endear themselves to you even the ones that are sort of balanced yeah yeah he loves his subjects otherwise these wouldn't work as mockumentaries yeah, i don't yeah. think but you've got to watch spinal tap jen oh yeah definitely okay i've seen best in show i wanted to mention in the joyfulness i mean fred willard's hair obviously <laughs> is just incredible in this um and it's tiny bits like that it's like Catherine o'hara's hair and waiting for government but what I wanted to say about Christopher Guest is like all of those four films, Spinal Tap, Best in Show, A Mighty Wind and um, Wait for Government, they're all about essentially performing. Mm. And what he gets mm. right is just the absolute fucking joy of performing. Like, actually, there were bits last night when, because, you know, all of the uh, the shots where they're on stage, where like the audience is like clapping and everything. And, and it really does like really having been a person who's been on stage I can tell you it really nails that kind of like sort of odd sort of euphoric rush that happens at stuff like that mm. so yeah I think I think he's great at things like That's that amazing. well you'll know that you've both been at things where people have clapped at us it's a lot of fun yeah yeah Fred Willard he was a highlight sorry I forgot to mention that and I also love the bit where, the, where he's talking about the Spanish Civil War towards the end <laughs> absolutely <laughs> like fucking wet myself it it did make me wonder what, like, which, if we were going to do a which of them were we, that would definitely be me. The one that was like, hey, I'm going to talk about the Spanish Civil War for 10 minutes, even if no one wants to hear I'm it. I'm clearly chipper as fuck, Christopher Guest. Well, yeah. fucking giddy owl. His hair is also incredible. Incredible. You know? yeah. Mike LaFontaine, Fred Willard's character of High Class Management has one of my favourite lines in the whole thing when he just goes, and I believe I was the first one to use the phrase, I don't think so. <laughs> I love that he, he genuinely believes he made up the phrase, I don't think so. There's a glorious bit in the extras as well, because, yeah, obviously I've watched them a million times, where Mike LaFontaine is chatting to Jennifer Coolidge's character, and he does a little joke while he's chatting her up and he takes a sip from a water fountain and then he spits it out and he goes, I'm sorry, I must be full. (laughs) (laughs) Proper cracks me up. God, there must be so much stuff, like the same as with Wayne for Government that's just on the cutting room floor. 60 hours of footage, apparently. Fucking hell. Edited down to a very snappy hour and a half. And 20 minutes of that is concert. Yeah. Okay, I take on board your criticisms and I actually agree with you but that aside I feel quite positive about this question a mighty wind rated or dated oh obviously rated a lovely time yes rated rated who's next what are we watching oh well I mean I'm gonna shit all over that goodwill <laughs> that exists and we're gonna watch although I do think it'd be interesting to talk about indecent proposal Oh, wow. Does this involve your hidden box of pubes? (laughs) Standard issue for all women.